Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which this work was developed and is presented. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Community Library, a podcast, book club and discussion space. I'm your host, Angowri Rice. I'm Kali Shanti. And I'm Maya O'Keefe. This week, we are bringing a very extra special bonus episode to you, and we are talking about drumroll, please. <laughs> Twilight by Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> Yay! First of all, I want to address why we're making a Twilight episode. Midnight Sun is coming out. And it just reminded me of the Twilight series and we kind of all had this resurgence. It's like our 12 year old selves just like, just like crawled out of the rubble and said, hello, I'm here and I'm in love with Twilight and you must reread me. That's kind of what a pandemic does to one. (laughs) 100%. It makes you revisit your past. (laughs) I thought to begin this episode, we should all go around and talk about our Twilight journey. We've we've all taken different paths to get to this point. Um, I think, Maya, we should start with you because in my mind, you are like one of the OG Twilight stands that I know. Wow, thank you. I mean, like, it's a little bit embarrassing, but yes, I love Twilight. So I really liked it when I was a kid. Like, maybe I like read the first one when I was about eight. And then I watched all of the movies in cinema. Um, I had a shirt that said, I love Edward, and another one that said, I love Jacob. And then I had another one that said, I love vampires, and another one that said, I love, like, werewolves. Um, and then I became a teenager, and I, like, started reading feminist theory. And then I really hated Twilight. <laughs> And now I'm an adult and I can see its flaws, but I also have, you know, tender nostalgic feelings towards it. Fair That's enough. fair. That's totally fair. You reread the first book in preparation for this episode, right? Oh, I reread all of them. Oh. <laughs> Over prepared. Okay, awesome. She doesn't need an excuse to reread Twilight. Yeah. Carly, what is your Twilight journey? Well, I remember, I have like a distinct memory of reading the first Twilight when I was in grade four. Like in our first exam period, we could take a book to read like after we were finished with our exam. And I remember being like, I'm going to read Twilight because everyone's talking about this book. Like my 10 year old self was like, wow, this is trash. (laughs) But I kept with it. I kept reading. I don't think I finished the whole series. I watched the first movie in cinema, I must have, but then I forgot, I like fell off and watched Breaking Dawn part one and part two in cinema because I was obsessed with people like getting pregnant and having babies and like getting married. (laughs) That's what what I wanted to see. Context, the three of us had a Netflix party where we watched the first two Twilight movies. And when I was watching that movie again, it was like these blocked out memories from my childhood were just coming back and I was like oh my god I forgot about how influenced I was by this movie as a child but yeah that's my Twilight journey not as intense as Maya's but it was present in my upbringing nonetheless. (laughs) I remember growing up I had a friend who was obsessed with Twilight because I was so in love with Harry Potter at that time I was not 
a Twilight stan. I never read the books. The first time I tried to read the books was when I was 10 and I was living in Germany and there was a very small library at my school and they had an even smaller English section. And one of the books that was in English at my school library was Twilight. So I picked it up because I was like, great, this is in English. And I read the first chapter and me as a 10 year old, I was like, no, I can't do this. I don't like this at all. Then my next encounter with the Twilight series happened much later, six years later, when year 11 exams rolled around and I was procrastinating for my exams and all of the Twilight movies were on Netflix and I binged all the Twilight movies in the space of like, two weeks leading up to the exams except for the last half hour of the last one because I got to that point and I was like I don't understand what's happening why am I doing this to myself and I stopped watching. Cut to middle to late 2019. I was here in Melbourne. I had a job coming up but I wasn't working yet and so I was just hanging out. All my friends were at uni. Thanks, you guys. <laughs> Nobody was available to hang out. And Kalia, you were traveling and doing fun stuff in Greece. And I'm shit so like that. sorry. So I turned to Twilight because I was like, okay, let's see what all the fuss is about. I'm going to read the Twilight series. And I did. And I got through them really quickly. And I hated it. But I also loved it. And then I reread the first book for this episode. And rereading it, I liked it more than when I first read it, which was such a plot twist. So that's my very complicated Twilight journey. I have so many feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but it's so good. Yeah, well, I, I honestly reckon Stephanie Meyer is on the same level as Pride and Prejudice. Whoa. Wow. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Controversial. <laughs> Whoa, that is a spicy take. You're going to get hate mail for that, Maya. <laughs> Jane Austen is going to haunt you for the rest of your life. Yeah, it's okay. I don't believe it, but I just wanted to see your guys' faces. <laughs> Maya just like stirring the pot. Hell yeah. God damn. Usually at this point in the, in the podcast, I will give everyone a quick rundown of the plot of the book, just in case they haven't read it. But I feel like... Twilight is so embedded in our culture that everyone knows it's about Bella. She falls in love with a vampire. Meanwhile, there's also a hot werewolf. She doesn't know who to choose. That's basically, like, that's it, though. Like, you didn't leave anything out of that. Yeah. I want to talk about the legacy of Twilight and how people responded to it in the world. I feel like even me growing up as like an eight-year-old and it was at the height of its fame then because 2009, it had been a year since the first one came out. My friend was obsessed with the series and even me as an eight-year-old, I was looking upon it scornfully like, oh, no, 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 well, that's trash. I know that that series is trash. Did you guys feel that? And and why did you think you had that immediate response, if so? I, I mean, like, I grew up in Wollongong, which, for those who don't know, um, it's a small town in Australia, um, and it's very surfy culture, and it's quite bogan. Melbourne definitely had like you know like when I moved here I like joked to some of my friends that we should like rewatch Twilight for nostalgia when we were like 14 and they were all like I've never seen it before and I was like what the fuck have you lived? It definitely is you know like I think it was much more kind of a big thing like everyone saw Twilight in cinema people would go on the first like day it was released and go um and I think it wasn't as big of a thing in Melbourne um because you guys are classier so yeah, I just like love Twilight and like I wasn't even ashamed of it. Melvin thinks it's classier than it is. Let's just put that out there. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. don't know about that. <laughs> yeah, what about you, Carly? 
Yeah, I don't know. I had this a similar experience to Angari where I was like this small child being like, this is bad literature. Like, what the f*** did I even know about <laughs> about books and good writing? Like, I was reading absolute trash. Yeah, it, it fits with what you were going to say about like girl hate and how every the world just, and the media and pop culture just likes to sh on things that young girls love. And I definitely had a part of that in me. I'm like the biggest high school musical stan in the world. <laughs> and so maybe it was like, I can't like two of the things that everyone is shaming young girls to like. So I had to be like, okay, well I choose high school musical and f Twilight. <laughs> but at the same time, I went to see those movies to see those movies in cinema, I was still reading the book. So it obviously appealed to me in some way, but I just had to be like, no, it's ironic. I don't like it that much. I felt a similar thing in that I felt this kind of weird, sick pride that I was like, hashtag not like other girls because I read Harry Potter. And like Harry Potter was my thing. And like that was on a higher level than Twilight for some reason you know in my mind that's how I made the distinction and I think that like that whole idea of not being like other girls is not healthy. The first time that I really thought about girl hate critically was when the whole idea of a visco girl came to light in social media. I mean look it's pretty funny like the the TikToks and the memes like they're all pretty funny but I was thinking about it and thinking Actually, this happens with anything that teenage girls love. And you're making fun of all these teenage girls who dress the same. Come to my high school, I will show you that every single boy dresses exactly the same and nobody gives them shit for it because they're not a teenage girl. Has the same hairstyle, has the same music taste. Like, honestly, I think we would make better TikToks about the shit that teenage boys like. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, it's memeable. Honestly, and I think, like, Visco Girls as well, it was, like, just girls who, like, cared about the environment and, like, liked drinking from water bottles. Yeah, and, like, didn't dress like they were trying to impress anyone. Like, they just dressed comfy and wore scrunchies. Yeah, like, they wore baggy shirts. Like, let them live, bitch! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, so I have an uncle who I love. I love you, Subesh, okay? You're the best. But also, he likes to remind me of all the different obsessions that I've had in my teenagehood and, you know, like, tween obsessions. And he totally, like, takes a piss out of my One Direction obsession, my High School Musical obsession, my Justin Bieber obsession, you know, all the things. It's like, okay, yeah, you can make fun of me for those things. I was obsessed. But also, isn't every young child enamoured with something at that stage of their lives? Like, Fortnite for example, doesn't receive half of the shit that One Direction, you know? Like, why aren't those things getting as much shit and as much hate as the things that teenage girls love? Like, come on, man. Fortnite culture and, like, video game culture in general is a lot more toxic. Like, High School Musical and Twilight never hurt anyone. Oh, actually, wait. Twilight, Twilight did. Although, <laughs> Twilight is really problematic. I do want to segue into that because Twilight is a series that gets so much hate, but does it get criticism for things that it should get criticism? No, of? not at all. Segwaying into that, let's talk about Bella, our icon, our protagonist, our awkward teen. <laughs> Rereading the first book for a second time, I did not hate her as much as I did the first time. And I think because I, I was able to move past my hashtag not like other girls bias and see that Bella was just kind of 
an awkward teenage girl not wanting to draw attention to herself. Discuss, how do you guys feel about Bella? I think she's a blank slate for many reasons because you're supposed to be able to insert yourself into Bella's position. Reading it as an adult, I was like, she's actually quite a complicated and sad character in a lot of ways because I think there was a lot of parentification. If you don't know what I mean by parentification, it just means when a child takes on the role more like a parent. So say her mother was never really very emotionally present. Um, you know, it's constantly said in a book um, how Bella felt like she was caring for her and how she talks about her mother with this like fondness, like almost maternal fondness, which is more like, you know, how a mother would talk about a child, especially when she's talking about how her mother's relationships. And then there's a scene that really stuck with me where um, Charlie's put like, um, I don't know, I don't, I live in Australia, I don't know anything about snow, um, but like put like snow protection on her wheels um, so like she doesn't crash. Yeah, and she starts crying like pretty much because she's like wow I've never felt this taken care of and I was like wow like so although she seems boring I think she just seems much more mature than a lot of teenagers in quite a boring way <laughs> like she's not allowed to be fun and young because she hasn't had that opportunity I guess like I don't know it's obviously it's been a long time since I've read the books and I probably I wouldn't be able to give a good analysis of what happens in the book but from my perspective it feels like while all those things definitely may be true and may be present with like when you're reading it from an adult perspective and from an educated perspective such as yours, Maya, I wonder whether that's Stephanie Meyer's actual intention, you know? Especially when you, I mean, the movies, it plays up that whole hashtag not like other girls thing, which is just like, you know, the only way to be cool and alluring is to like not be the stereotypical archetype of a teenage girl and be like hashtag quirky. Like, I don't like girly things. I drive a truck. Like, I don't want to try on a dress. <laughs> like, you know, maybe that's just the movie. Like I said, I do need to reread the book. Maybe she comes across that way, but I'm not sure if that's the intention. And it does definitely play into that whole narrative of like you've got to reject the societal depiction of what a girl is to be like a cool girl and to get guys to like you. And I think that might also be more Mormon influence um, because Mormons aren't into consumerism. Um, they're also very much like they're very against vanity, um, especially for women. Um, so women aren't allowed to be aware or obsessed with their own beauty. And I think that's really reflective in Bella's character. How she almost views herself as being slightly sexless because she views sex as being so wrong she can't imagine herself being in that situation omg so deep mm, yeah and she's so uncomfortable in her body and uncomfortable with taking up space and being seen as a desirable object like she frequently wonders what edward sees in her and why he's so attracted to her she's disbelieving of his love for her I also think it's kind of ironic that Bella exhibits all of these traits of like not being like other girls and you know she's into books and she's she's just more tomboyish and she's not like the girls that we see the other girls that we see like Jessica who wants to go to prom and she loves dancing and she wants to wear pretty dresses and yet it's ironic that the series has become such a popular thing amongst teenage girls that teenage girls are making Twilight the thing that they're not into to not be like other girls if that makes sense like it's just ironic in that way also, I wanted to mention about Bella, um, her favourite colour is brown. <laughs> yeah, bitch, you are lying. It's the colour of earth. <laughs> Shut up, whose favourite colour is brown, honestly? Dying. Like, 
when you're trying so hard to be different that you have to say your favorite color is f***ing brown. <laughs> Bitch. No. Okay, so if we're looking at Bella in the context of being written by Stephanie Meyer and Bella as a symbol for hashtag not being like other girls, if we look at her as a character and analyze her that way, she does have a lot of internalized girl hate and misogyny. In the movie, they don't do this as much, but in the book, she flirts with Jacob to get him to tell her more about the Cullens. And when she's doing that, she's disgusted with herself because she's acting like the girls that she doesn't like in high school or... or She's acting like all the other girls who flirt to get attention and flirt to get things out of boys. And so she's got a lot of um, internalized hate and misogyny. And that's really sad because I think a lot of girls deal with that, actually. And I'm not saying that she's not allowed to like books and trucks and things like that. But it's coupled with an assumption that girls who don't like those things are ditzy or stupid or somehow not as good as Bella and I think that's a big problem. I think it's also interesting how Jessica's written Um, because Jessica like is just Bella's friend and although in Midnight Sun it's revealed that she doesn't always have the nicest thoughts about Bella you know thoughts aren't necessarily something that someone can control and her actions kind of show that she's like you know usually quite a good friend to Bella Um, but she's kind of written off as being slightly ditzy and less deep because you know she's obsessed with Edward but Edward didn't like her and she's obsessed with Mike and Mike doesn't like her and she's just a girl who likes like girly things therefore she's stupid yeah exactly yeah and she also seems to be more kind of pursuing men than Bella is Um, and that's kind of written as being desperate and undesirable and she becomes kind of like a slight joke in a lot of ways Rewatching the movie Jessica is played by Anna Kendrick. Iconic. And I love Jessica in the movie. Yeah, she's so good. Anna Kendrick steals the show, like, not gonna lie. She's amazing as Jessica. Like, so unapologetically bright and bubbly and like, yeah, go for it, girl. Like, you do you. That's amazing. Yeah, she killed it. And Bella's like, I have a cactus and depression. Okay, but why does she hold the cactus the whole way? <laughs> like, it's a metaphor for her character. She's prickly on the outside, but she still needs water. Mm, Aww, true. That was beautiful. That's fake. I was trying to tell a joke, but you guys took that seriously. No, but that was beautiful. <laughs> Be a poet. <laughs> so, on the other hand, Maya, you send us frequent memes about a feminist reading of Twilight. Can you tell us about a possible feminist reading of it? Yes, in the beginning of a book, well I don't know if it happens in the beginning of a book actually, but in the beginning of a movie she's doing a monologue about how she would like, you know, if she was going to die she would like to die in a place of someone she loves. You know, you go throughout the whole movie thinking she's going to die in a place of Edward, however it's revealed she later wanted to die in a place of her mum, which is, you know, it's feminist prose because it's kind of understating, like, you know, we automatically thought she would die for the man. And then the whole time, really, she was going to die for her mum. So it's kind of like that girl love, that relationship between mother and daughter. Frozen totally copied that shit, just gonna yeah. say. <laughs> Exposed. You know, like, undermining kind of like our patriarchal automatic mindset that she would be willing to die for Edward. My other thoughts for why it's kind of slightly a feminist book... Um, is just kind of like making a lot of stretches 
to be honest. (laughs) (laughs) Go, stretch away, stretch away. But I definitely think that Bella, um, she can set a lot of boundaries with the men in her life in a very, in a very accessible way. Um, so say with Mike Newton, she consistently, you know, like will say no to him while still remaining polite. And when I was younger, I really struggled with being assertive. And so it was quite good to see someone say no without like, you know, being kind of like too aggressive with it because that always scared me. And then I think that's probably about it for feminism. (laughs) (laughs) The rest is very anti-feminism. And that's that on feminism and Twilight. (laughs) Yeah. In other words, um... Not an extremely feminist book, but a little bit feminist, nonetheless. Good segue into Edward and Bella's relationship, because, I mean, I was actually shocked rereading the book how many weird phrases there are about power and their power struggle. There's a running theme in that Edward is dangerous, right? He's like, I'm dangerous. But... Bella isn't scared of him and she frequently says like I'm not scared of you and he's like but you should be and that's this running theme is that he's worried that she's not scared enough of him. I was thinking about that and thinking how like is it almost this idea of of this kind of toxic masculinity where in order to feel validated he must be feared by women and he must have that power over them And that's why he kind of feels so uncertain with Bella because one, he can't read her thoughts. So that's taking him down a notch. And two, she's not scared of him. And so he feels kind of emasculated in that way. 100%. Jinx. Jinx. (laughs) (laughs) Carly, what are your thoughts? Oh, I don't know. I mean, exactly that. I just, I think it's like, it feels a bit pathetic. Like, he's constantly like, I'm not good for you. I am so bad. I could hurt you. And she's just like, I don't give a f-. Like, you're fine. You're just a pasty-ass <laughs> white boy. Like, chill out. <laughs> I kind of want to bang. Like, why are you making such a big deal out of this? And he's like, wait, what? No, I could kill you. Bitch, aren't you scared? <laughs> so, yeah. She's like, that makes it harder. <laughs> <laughs> she's into it. He sets all these rules for their relationship. Like, honestly, when I was rereading it, I was like, this is an episode of Too Hot to Handle. He's like, we can't kiss, we can't touch. (laughs) And at the end, there will be no prize. Oh my God, it's Kells. Edward is Kells. (laughs) Genuinely. But it's like, it's like she's, she's walking on eggshells around him. She's like always so careful. It's this unhealthy, manipulative relationship. And at the end, Bella is talking about how, like, how relationships work, about two people in a relationship. She says, quote, they have to save each other equally, end quote. And I'm like, but should a relationship be about people saving each other? It really shouldn't. If it's healthy, it shouldn't be about saving people. It should be about growing together. And supporting each other and not being the reason that you guys are alive. (laughs) And I think that's, again, parentification, where she's then developed a saviour complex because she's been having to mature a lot faster. I also think that there's a consistent... Like, it's consistent that Edward steps across barriers um, and boundaries that Bella's set. Um, So the most obvious is him, him watching her sleep. So there's no consent in that. He goes and watches her sleep and then... You know, he gets overexcited because, you know, she'll say, like, Edward in her sleep and stuff. Um, The other thing is when they're kind of dating, 
and Jessica wants to know what the deal is, he, like, listens to Jessica's thoughts to find out what she says. Which is, you know, quite intense eavesdropping, and Bella asks him not to, but he still does it. What an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> in the movie, there's the gaslighting, and in my book as well, where after he saves her from a truck, he goes, no, I was right next to you the whole time. You've hit your head. That bugs me more than anything else is him gaslighting her and like when we were watching it on our netflix party as soon as that scene happened everyone in the chat um, wrote gaslighting 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 yeah now that was such bullshit oh my god but that's the that is the other thing is that i mean we were talking about this before my is that it ain't that deep it's just vampires loving in this like intense exciting way i mean we don't it would it would be boring if they settled down and they had this healthy relationship the whole time. And I, I do think their relationship gets better. When Stephanie Meyer is asked about this, and she has said, she's been quoted in interviews saying that they're not meant to be role models. They're kids, you know, they're not supposed to be the model of a perfect relationship. They're learning as they go and it's this intense love. On the other other hand, people will make role models of whoever they want. If you put something in a book, once it goes out into the world, it's out there. You can't control it anymore. You can't control how people respond to it or what they feel about it. And millions of teenage girls are reading this thinking, oh my god, I want a relationship like that. Yeah, that was what everyone was hoping for. That was like the standard of teenage love. Like, that's a bit dangerous. I mean, let's let's take out the fact that everyone's trying to kill each other and drink each other's blood. Let's take a real toxic relationship that everyone's aspiring to. And that is, yikes, that's, that's a big yikes. Yeah, and how Charlie tries to set parental boundaries for Bella and limit the amount of time they spend together because Bella just ditches her friends and is completely isolated with Edward and Alice being her only two support people. And it's like, literally like, you can count, you can Google signs of abusive relationships, and every single category will be a part of Bella and Edward's relationship, um, which is a bit insane. When Stephanie Meyer responds to this sort of criticism, she's like, well, they're teenagers, it's young love, it's, it's intense, and this is the kind of love that we see in Romeo and Juliet. They're teenagers, it's all or nothing, and they just go into it head first, they dive in, and it's like, yeah, that is actually quite realistic in terms of young adolescent relationships. It's very melodramatic. But usually in YA novels, when they end up together at the end, they're still teenagers, and they will continue to exist off the page and not necessarily together in this wild love affair. However, the way it's presented at the end of the Twilight series is that oh no 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 they're married they have a child they will be together forever in this wild insane manipulative drug-like love it's presented that this kind of love is a forever love whereas what i like about romeo and juliet is that that kind of love is doomed from the beginning it's very reflective of the mormon ideals of relationships where the wife is obedient and the husband is um kind of you know the the enforcer and the boss um and I also think um, she doesn't just have Bella and Edward as, as having this insane love. She has Alice and Jasper and she has Emmett and Rosalie and she has Carousel or whatever his name is. Carousel, the daddy vampire. And Carlisle. Esme. Carlisle. 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 <laughs> Carousel. Carousel. <laughs> daddy vampire and Esme. <laughs> Oh my god. Um, Wait, how many times have you read the books? 
smile. He thought his name was Karis. Karis. Yeah. I can't. That is iconic. Oh my god. Petition to change his name to Carousel at Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> and I mean, Victoria and James have that level of an intense relationship as well, where Victoria is willing to kill for James to get revenge. And I think mm-hmm. there's a very kind of almost animalistic way to the vampire's love, where it's like mating for life and it's intense, like there's not the human critical thinking to it. Um, which, you know, it's hot, um, but it's also problematic and unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's just condoning all of the abuse and all of the toxicity and saying that, yeah, I mean, like, you can't have a real love without all of this that It's like that with a lot of stories. At what point does the role of the author and their responsibility to tell a healthy story come into it? Like, they know that they have this audience of millions and millions of impressionable people, yet they're choosing to tell this story that is condoning all of these things. Like, does the art still stand by itself? And is it still just, like, you know, a depiction of something that could potentially happen? Or do they have to take responsibility for telling a narrative that that has a good message and teaches a good lesson? But it's also... Stephanie Meyer wouldn't have known how much her book would blow up when she was writing it. She wrote it from her heart, not knowing the millions and millions of people it would reach. And then it becomes a question of do parents enforce censorship to their kids and create kind of like a healthy dialogue about how this romanticizes relationships or does what author have to censor their art? I mean, I think... And, you know, this is something that I remember discussing with my English class uh, at length about uh, when we studied a particular book that shall not be named uh, in English class, I did not like the depiction of women at all. And I was very vocal about that because this male author wrote a book in which the protagonists were always men and boys and the female characters usually existed in B-plots and they were always in some sort of abusive relationship and this was used as a plot device to further the growth of this male character and then once these abused women had served their purpose in the story of helping this young man grow they either died or disappeared but either way they were still in these abusive relationships and I remember really taking issue with that and saying to my English teacher I think that this is a harmful portrayal of female characters and my English teacher was like well the author isn't intending to be misogynistic you know his his intention is to show the harsh realities of the world for women and I kind of thought I don't really care I don't care what the author intended because no matter his intention my response as a reader was to the work that he created and he made those decisions consciously and my response as a reader to the work that he created is that this is a harmful and misogynistic portrayal of women and he has no control over how people respond to his narrative. Anyway, that's a very uh, (laughs) long-winded way of me saying that I don't care about what the author intended anymore. I think the work speaks for itself and once you send something out into the world, um, that's it. No, 100%, because that isn't being released alongside a written statement, and not every viewer was going to go and look up this person who shall not be named and read about all the things that he intended when he made this work, you know? 
that's that's not what's going to happen. Whatever they intended doesn't matter if it's going to be interpreted in all these different ways. They have, to, they have to take responsibility for that. The the author of the work has to be ready to take all of the praise and also the responsibility and the criticism for certain messages that people take from it. But I mean, again, on the other other hand, it's like Stephanie Meyer put Twilight out into the world. I guess she's no longer responsible for how people respond to it. Or is she because she created it? I don't know. Mm. Existential questions yeah. about Stephanie Meyer. <laughs> Oofed. Yeah, a lot of the hate she got was not this critical and it wasn't this well thought out as well. A lot of the hate she got was just from men being like, I hate it because it has teenage girls in it and because teenage girls like it. Yeah, that relates back to what you were saying is, was it receiving hate for the right reasons? And she's like, she's a human. And like, can you imagine getting millions of messages a day just being like, I hate you and I hate your work? So like, to a point as well, like, does she necessarily like, because she got a lot of flack because she stopped like replying to people's messages that was hate um and she also wouldn't um answer some questions in interviews that were hateful and at first I was like well you know like she wrote this book and now she has to deal with the consequences but then I was also like she's a person she has addressed it before and she's got to look after her own mental health to a point as well and if you're just being hateful without like being like I don't want to say like intelligently hateful but like critically hateful or not even hate but yeah. like a critique Criticism. of the art what did you guys think of um kind of throughout the book it's very present that Bella's constantly talking about cooking um she cooks every day she cleans and she kind of cares for Charlie in that domestic way what did you guys think of that I mean I guess there are a few ways you can look at it you can look at it at her being in that um that quintessential female role of cooking and cleaning you can look at it as her being in this uh, role of the parent to her parents. And then on another level in the Twilight canon, you can look at her being talking about food all the time to juxtapose Edward who doesn't eat, who only drinks blood and for, you know, further down the line in the series when she does become a vampire and how, you know, it's a symbol for her changing and she starts out being so human. Like that's one of the human things that she does. She sleeps, she goes to the toilet, she eats, and that's part of her human identity. And then when she becomes a vampire, that changes. So I think there are a few ways you can read it, I guess. My opinion in my books, it wasn't less about parentification, her like inhabiting the domestic space so much. I think it was more about her role as a woman in the Mormon community and her kind of taking on that domestic role. And Charlie being the provider because he provides for her financially. Like when she first moves, she saved up money to buy a truck, and then he surprises her by already affording her a truck. Um, so he's fulfilling that like kind of patriarchal role um, of kind of being the financial provider, um, and then she provides the kind of more feminine maternal role of kind of being the, you know, house maintainer. And I think um, in a lot of ways. Um, with Edward's family's wealth, there's no need for her to become that, like, kind of, like, for him to work. Um, and also there isn't that much providing to do, because they don't eat. Um, and so I think in a lot of ways, um, becoming a vampire offers an escape um, from the traditional um, patriarchal roles offered to women within the Mormon community. Go off, Maya! And also, it means that someone's taking care of her for a change. Yeah, and he's over 100 years old, so there's also the maturity factor. <laughs> Although, is he that mature? <laughs> 
Age is just a number, He's guys. He's still like Roar XD. I'm a moody teen. Like hundred oh, percent, and he's so dramatic. But so is Bella. But they have that maturity effect where they're like, we're not like other teenagers. We understand life on a deeper level. Okay, real question though. So you know how people's brains like keep developing into their twenties, especially men. Like men's brains keep developing until they're like twenty five. Oh, or something. it's not even twenty five. It's forty five. Is when men are emotionally mature. Bruh. My Bruh. just coming for all the men. <laughs> no, it's true. Hey, Google. When do men emotionally mature? 43. 43. Oh, damn. <laughs> Please do not edit that out, Angari. <laughs> that was iconic. So, when Edward is turned, he is 17. He still has the brain of a 17-year-old, so he's still impulsive. He's still kind of reckless. He's still a little bit emotionally stunted, not going to lie. So it makes sense that he is he is a 109-year-old emo, and he's been emo for 100 <laughs> years. <laughs> so what did you guys think of the pace of Bella and Edward's relationship? Oh my god, she was in love with him, like super quick yeah yeah i mean watching the film it's just like what the f you guys just met and spoke once here's the other thing though that i wanted to talk about is that yes their relationship develops super quickly on top of that she is so open to the fact that he's a vampire like yeah implausibly like it's insane how she's like oh no i've already considered that you're possibly a superhero Oh, turns out you're a vampire? Oh, that's fine, I guess. Yeah, that whole research sequence when she's like Googling it, when she becomes a detective, and she's just like discovering all this long forgotten history that's freely available on the internet. And then, and then she's like, oh my god, he's a vampire. And then he's just like, yup, I am a vampire. And she's like, yeah, okay, cool. It's one aspect of the series that I kind of love because so many fantasy YA books in that way have a moment where the protagonist finds out about that fantastical world or whatever and they're like what I can't believe this I must be dreaming this is you're playing a prank what and I just kind of loved how she was so open to it and ready to believe it and I just kind of really liked that because in in that way I mean if you think about a lot of the other fantasy books that were happening around that time was kind of new and different that she exists in the real world and there's a fantasy world that she doesn't know about but when that fantasy world presents itself it's not totally out of the question for her you know at the beginning of the book she's like I hate forks and I hate how my mom has chosen you know this new relationship over me and I hate how you know Charlie doesn't get me and I hate the rain and I think she was in a position where she would have accepted almost anything to make it more exciting. And I think Edward definitely became like a, an escape. And although he was deeply flawed, he, he was an escape from a patriarchal society. Which leads into the omnipresent threat of sexual assault within the books. Yeah, I mean, the first way that it's addressed in the first book is Bella. She she is walking alone at night and a group of men corner her and she freaks out and she freezes and Edward comes spiralling around the corner in his silver Volvo to rescue her. His Volvo. No, no, no. <laughs> the reason I mentioned specifically that it's a silver Volvo is because it is mentioned so frequently in the books. It's like Stephanie Meyer had like a sponsorship from Volvo or something. 
it's a metaphor for like a white horse. <laughs> Genuinely. I'm like, okay, it's a silver Volvo. <laughs> but sorry, enough about the silver Volvo. What were you going to say, Maya? You know, it's a very real presence in our society. Um, there is a constant threat from male violence. Um, and Edward kind of being the protector from that. Um, I think I think in a lot of ways it is a real reality that men can offer a level of protection from the threat that is men. Like, if I want to go for a walk past about 8 o'clock, you know, my older brother has to come with me. Um, that kind of thing. Um, so I do understand it, but I also think um, it would have been cool if she could have protected herself a little bit more, but that also would have been a little bit unrealistic. I... I struggle with the fact that Edward is the one to save her again because it's like but at the same time you know within myself just in my day-to-day life it's a really attractive quality in a man when they can protect you from something like that and it's really nice but it's it's this kind of twisted thing of like well thank you for looking out for me but also I shouldn't have to modify my behavior anyway I mean that's a whole rape culture thing that we could get into later but it just yeah I would have preferred it if she had saved herself I definitely grapple with that same thing and Gary of like I shouldn't I shouldn't feel more attracted to someone a man who is like aware of the threat of men to women and I have that like conflict because it's almost like I mean in the context of Twilight it's like Edward is using the threat of men of other men to get Bella to like him more even though he's just as toxic he's offering this protection but it's conditional because he still wants her to be with him meanwhile you know who's to say that he's not as dangerous as those guys I mean he himself thinks he's as dangerous as them but he's using his protection as a way to yeah get with her which I find gross and I think that's also a thing that is just very real is like oh is this guy is this guy saying all these nice things about me or acting like a feminist because he wants something from me or is he actually a good guy like we don't know we don't know what the actual intentions are and I think that's just like a very real thing in a woman's life very well put and I think Stephanie Meyer definitely included that to kind of show that wasn't you know the worst guy he could be and it goes back to that Hannah Gatsby quote um which is Um, There's good men and there's bad men, but the problem is that men draw the line between good men and bad men. So bad men can say, no, I'm a good man because here's the line and I haven't stepped over it, whilst they're moving the line to suit them and their own personal agenda. And I think, you know, Edward's abusive and he's manipulative and he gaslights her um, and there's a constant threat of physical abuse that he might, you know, kill her because he loses control, which is a bullshit excuse but because you know these men are bad men because they have impure thoughts and have impure intentions they are bad and he is therefore good because he can save her from it I think that's really problematic can we talk about Jacob and the Quileute tribe and Lapush Maya you were really the one who who drew my attention to this you know I would first like to acknowledge that I'm white I'm not indigenous American Um, I also live in Australia, where education from Indigenous Americans is very, very limited. And so I really genuinely apologise if I don't get this quite right. And, you know, feel free to leave comments telling me, you know, where I messed up, and I'll kind of take that on board. Um, But I think, from what I've read online, Stephanie Meyer took 
these real people and took aspects of their culture and appropriated it and misused it and rewrote it to suit her kind of white saviour and white America perspective. Its culture was kind of misused and rewritten. I think the only time that really a lot of people had heard about these Indigenous Americans was through Twilight and she wrote their stories for them and she wrote it really incorrectly. Also like the whole depiction of Native Americans in the movie and in the text is just it's so condescending and primitive it's so clear that it's um from a white perspective and obviously again I'm not Native American I'm not indigenous I don't have that perspective but looking at it from a non-white perspective it was like "Mm, I cannot imagine that this is an accurate portrayal of their culture and I think it's just really important when bringing indigenous narratives to the mainstream to the white mainstream that you get it right So when I was researching this, Maya actually sent me an article or a a literary criticism of the representation of the Quileute tribe in the Twilight books uh, from a university journal, which I will link in the show notes. And that took me to a link to a website called Truth vs. Twilight. And this was created around the same time that the Twilight films were really popular. And this is a collaboration between the Burke Museum in Seattle, Washington, and the Quileute tribe um, who live in La Push, which is a real place, uh, and Forks, Washington, is also a real place. Um, and so the aim of this website is to share the stories of the Quileute people and the history of their tribe and kind of debunk all of the um, misconceptions and the fiction that Stephanie Meyer has created in Twilight. This was a very comprehensive and educational resource for me to use uh, when researching this topic, especially because it talks about Twilight specifically. So I will link that website in the show notes, but I will also link the official Quileute Nation website, uh, which has more information about who they are and their stories, specifically not in relation to Twilight or Stephanie Meyer. And I want to read this quote from the homepage of Truth vs. Twilight, which I think is a really important quote. The phenomena of the Twilight series has had vast economic benefits for Summit Entertainment, Stephanie Meyer, the tiny town of Forks, Washington, and even Nordstrom department stores. But the tribe whose culture was represented for background fodder in the teenage love story has seen little benefit. In addition to shedding light on the appropriation of Quileute culture, we wish to expose how the Twilight Saga has presented a skewed version of modern Native American life and to offer visitors to this site an alternative perspective with links and resources for a more meaningful understanding of Indians in the modern era, end quote. I also thought this quote about the response from the Quileute tribe was really interesting and important to highlight. Quote, Quileute responses to the Twilight book and film series have been as diverse as the community itself. Some have enjoyed the newfound public interest in their culture, while others find the whole story and all the attention distasteful. And still others are not interested in the hype and see this phenomenon as a phase that will fade soon enough. End quote. With a lot of exposure, there comes, of course, good things and bad things. But overall, what I understood from what the website is trying to say is that Maya's... Um, fictionalized and skewed version of the story of the Quileute tribe has eclipsed, no pun intended, the stories and histories and culture of these real people. And um, that, I think, is kind of a problem. 
And I think the segregation between um, Forks High School and the Reserve um, is really, really interesting because, you know, there's no Native Americans that go to the school in Forks. Um, they all go to a school in the Reserve. And I think that's really quite problematic. And I also think it's, um, you know, from a Mormon perspective, um, the Mormons, like, this is quite a problematic part of their history. In the 80s and 70s, um, there was this project of kind of Mormon people kind of sponsoring and adopting kind of Native American children. Um, and a lot of abuse happened from, you know, Mormon priests onto Native American children. Um, and I think it's really, really interesting that this Mormon woman has taken parts of their culture and stolen it and made a fortune and then has made no repercussions. And it's not even like it's a common criticism of the of the novel in the mainstream, you know? You can find these criticisms if you go looking for it, but it's not a conversation that's very president. President? That's very present when you bring up Twilight. I think just in the context of education on Indigenous Americans and First Nations people in general, it's so tone deaf because it's people are still not learning about the history of their land and about the first people to inhabit the land. And then you go and release something like this. It's just, yeah, it's, it's really insulting, I think. I have a few themed discussion questions. Would you rather be able to read minds or see the future? Oh god, probably read minds, to be honest. Yeah, I'm so nosy, I want to read minds. Yeah, because reading the future, like, we all, we, that would just end in a feedback loop. To quote Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yes, do it! Time is cyclical and the future is inevitable and anything you do to change the future will just backfire and you'll end up in the same place, basically. Not a direct quote, but a paraphrasing. I don't know, though, but being able to read people's minds, like, oh, I think that would be really bad for my anxious brain. Yeah, oh god, self-esteem. Oof. Okay, another discussion question. Do you believe in vampires? Yes or no? No. Oh my god. <laughs> I wish. Like, I really want to, but no. Unless? <laughs> and I'm the most bad crazy out of you two, so, like... <laughs> no, I, like, low-key do, but, like... <laughs> but, like, not... Not in a Twilight way. Like, that doesn't exist. But, like, <laughs> I don't know. Maybe there's been some, some people in history that... I don't know, okay? I believe in a lot of stupid shit, so, like, don't listen to me. <laughs> I mean, full disclosure, and we talked about this yesterday, we all believe in ghosts. <laughs> yeah. However, I draw the line of vampires. I don't <laughs> think that <laughs> vampires exist. <laughs> Okay, fine. I don't either. Shh. You didn't hear what I said. No, believe in them. Do you know what? Actually, when I was younger, and actually part of me still does believe that there's a theory about Harry Potter that J.K. Rowling is Rita Skeeter in exile from the Wizarding World because she wrote a whole book about the Wizarding World and they exiled her. Oh my god. God. Yeah, and the Wizarding World still exists. Like, a small but fierce part of me believes that that is real. I can see that. That is 100% real. Oh my god. I'm actually so happy right now. I can't believe- What? <laughs> team Edward, Team Jacob, go. No ums or ahs or buts, go. Edward. Oh my god. Oh, no, but I'm like- I so- mean, Neva ideally, but Edward. Like, if I have to pick one. I'm team, like, go to university. True. <laughs> No, I tend to lean more towards Jacob because I just found Edward so annoying. But then when I watched the movie, like, just now, the other day, I was like, 
Oh my god, okay. He, he do be kind of cute though. <laughs> so I do not know. For the record, I am Team Jacob. I will always be Team Jacob. No hate. Yes, okay, cool. I feel validated. I'm also controversially Team Gail, so I feel like I lean on the controversial edge of things. I feel like more people are Team Jacob than they are Team Edward. Interesting. Because Edward is toxic. Do vampires have to go to the toilet? If so, do they pee blood? I was literally just thinking this. Like, what do they shit it? Oh. <laughs> but like, surely they have to excrete it in some way. Like, I don't know. Yeah, or do they just use all of the nutrients? Because there's that scene in a book where um, Bella's like, can you eat the food? Um, and then Edward like eats the food to show her, but he has to choke it up later. Like, that's kind of talked about in Midnight Sun, where he physically has to choke it up later, which shows he doesn't One last thing that I wanted to say before we close off is that the thing that I love about the Twilight series, and this is something that I loved when reading it for the second time, is the aesthetic. The aesthetic of rainy, cold, dark, gloomy, forest, trees, vampires, werewolves. Love it. Just, and the movie, and it's all blue, and just, love it. Chef's kiss. That is one of my favorite things ever, and I think the aesthetic is really what, like, solidified my complicated enjoyment of this series. (laughs) Yeah, iconic soundtrack as well. Oh my god. Iconic. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, you can subscribe on iTunes so you never miss an episode. You can also rate and review on your podcast platform of choice. You can follow the community library on Instagram at the underscore community underscore library and use the hashtag the community library on Instagram or Twitter. The podcast artwork is designed by Ashley Ronning. You can look at more of her work at ashleyronning.com or you can go to helio-press.com. That's dash the symbol. Once again, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for hanging out with me, guys. This is really fun. Yeah, thank you. This was the best. And thank you for everyone to listening to like this really dumb, <laughs> deep analysis of Twilight. If you guys want a part two then part three, then part four. There are three other books in the series. So if you like it, I guess let me know and we'll do more. Uh, We might be back. We might not be. But stay safe. uh, Wash your hands and read a book, preferably Twilight. Bye. Definitely. It also assumes... Sorry. No, you go. (laughs) Classic. Classic. (laughs) I don't know, I, I feel mean, like, like that I wasn't Bella is sorry. Just relatable. Oh sorry, you go first. Mm-mm. You go, you go, you go. And also Another just that whole montage where she like Oh, you go first, babe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I, think... I mean I think You go first. No, you go, you go, Maya. No, no, you go. You had a thought before. Oh.